all of that is, I guess you could say, a, a bottom-up negotiation of these larger terrains of inequality that have existed for a long time and are also constantly being reproduced. So I think it's kind of a, it's there's a lot of complexity. My students don't like it when I say this, but it's all complex. It's hard to untangle and tease out these threads. But I think a lot about these entanglement as intimacies and at these various scales that come to play in the encounters that migrant people have with others, with the border, um, with each other. You're listening to UAR Remixed, a podcast by the journal Urban Affairs Review. That's Leslie Gross-Beardson, a lecturer with the Council on African Studies and Council on Middle Eastern Studies at Yale University. Leslie's research, as you might recall from our last episode, explores the dynamics of African migration through the contested border space of Morocco and Moroccan cities. Leslie's work draws on a diverse set of intellectual traditions to understand how race and racism play critical roles in debates over citizenship, belonging, and mobility. In this episode, we'll start delving into these questions. Leslie, maybe we can start with how you found yourself studying these issues. I am from South Texas. I'm from from San Antonio and grew up um, kind of on the edge of what might be the borderland region between the U.S. and Mexico. And um, as an adult, I lived for six years in Morocco uh, after 9-11, 2001. And so during that period, going back and forth between Texas to see family and returning to Morocco where I was teaching, I saw how borders and and the politics of migration became increasingly important in both of those areas. And at the same time, discourses about migration became increasingly racialized. And so I've been thinking through and kind of wrestling with that idea and trying to make sense of that across these spaces for a while. And that drove actually my um, decision to pursue a PhD in geography because I had previously been doing something different. And, um, you know, yeah, I just really wanted to make sense of how these really, to my mind, in a lot of ways, different spaces actually had a lot of commonalities and a lot of the processes that were taking place, um, you know, were unfolding simultaneously. And um, really what got me to thinking with Black geographies, which is a major source of inspiration, an analytical framework and a political project that I engage with a lot in my work, comes from um, toward the end of my time in coursework at Clark in the geography department. I took a reading course with Jody Emmel and two other students, Alex Moulton and Janae Davis, on Black geographies and Indigenous geographies. And that really shaped the way that I approached these problems and these issues. And um, that has continued after I finished my PhD. And as I've started um, kind of revising my dissertation for the book manuscript that I'm working on right now, I've been thinking really seriously with Black geographies as part of this Black radical tradition that is both sort of an analytical framework grounded in internationalism, grounded in a materialist explanation, and also very much grounded in the histories of race and racism, both uh, particularly in the new world, but also in the in the colonized old world, if we can use those, um, those terms. And um, and also, you know, part of the Black radical tradition is it is an activist political project. And so it felt really 
um, appropriate, given that my research takes place in Northern and West Africa, to think with this framework that is making sense of the legacies of enslavement, of colonialism, of racism, of capitalism, and also taking a real activist stance, which I do in my own work. And then I guess if I'll add one more sort of base uh, or foundational um orientation, I guess, would be in post-colonial and feminist studies, which is something I've really engaged with since my undergraduate years in college, really trying to understand the way that places now signified as the global South operate on their own terms, not in a vacuum, not unrelated to things that are happening in Euro-America or the so-called global North. Um, but also trying to understand things that are happening in these global South locations on their own terms um, without imposing these analytical categories that come from somewhere else. And the feminist part of that post-colonial project is really thinking in terms of multiplicity and relation relationality instead of um, some sort of universal that, that race operates this way all the time or migration operates this way all the time or gender operates this way all the time. So those are all things that have informed a lot of my work from the beginning, or I guess a more recent part of this intellectual trajectory has been about my engagement with this idea of the urban, which really comes again from ethnography for me. I was following migrants. I was meeting migrant communities where they were in Morocco, and these were in cities. And cities became these places where I saw borders and bordering really unfold far away from the fences, far away from the Mediterranean Sea that we, you know, we see on the news with the boats crossing. Um, but a lot of these active processes of bordering and of exclusion making was happening in urban space. And at the same time, a lot of resistance to borders, a lot of the ways that migrants collaborated together against the border in order to keep going had to do with being together in urban spaces and asserting certain kinds of claims on that space and also claims in terms of their belonging that had both to do with the spaces they were in in, the, in these in these cities and also this sort of transnational network of people in you know in in urban spaces everywhere from West Africa to northern Africa to various places in Europe and beyond. Can you give us a little bit of context on Morocco's role in these regimes of migration and borders? So Morocco is a huge sending country of, of their own people to Europe, um, far larger uh, population of Moroccans in Europe than, than other countries in, that I look at or that I work with in West and Central Africa. But being this buffer state enables Moroccans to look at this quote unquote problem of illegal immigration as an, a problem of another place and of another kind of migrant. And race becomes really important. And I have friends that work on this in Mexico, and they're seeing that same discourse happen among Mexican nationals who are looking at Central American migrants and seeing their Central Americanness and particularly particularly their indigeneity as this racialized marker of unauthorizedness and of Ill illegality. So it creates sort of these hierarchies of otherness and these competitions among marginalized migrant groups um, as a result of these broader transcontinental processes. I think it's all of those. I've written about this before as entanglements um, and thinking about these, these sort of racialized uh, 
um, and identity entanglements that are continental, that are um, local, and that are embodied, right? And so you have these ways in which Morocco, for example, is sort of caught as a state between, you know, with the European Union wanting it to keep migration from coming and the rest of the African Union wanting um, Morocco to be a good member of the African Union and support African people, right? And so you have these intimate entanglements where Morocco is, and also to to defend its own people and its need for remittances from migrants who from its own people that go to Europe and need and need money um, and send money back to Morocco, which is a huge, it's like maybe 9% of the GDP right now in Morocco is, is from Moroccans living abroad that send money home. So that's a huge part of this. And so Morocco is sort of navigating all of these pressures. And then on a, you know, on a local level, and we see this particularly in dense urban spaces, right? Um, you have Moroccans who have family who are perhaps illegalized living in Europe, who are feel precarious, or they have been deported, or they have returned from Europe because their visas were denied, or they lived in Europe and couldn't hack it anymore because of the racism that exists against the anti anti-Muslim, anti-Arab racism that exists in Europe and is really rampant. So they're in Morocco in these urban spaces looking at these othered sub-Saharan migrant people um, and, and seeing a way to really recuperate some sense of belonging, some sense of subjectivity, some sense of uh, claim um, in their city, in their country, a claim as a global citizen or as a citizen of modernity. Leslie started to touch on these networks and chains of labor that are really important and significant sources of income for sending nations like Morocco in terms of remittances. But the jobs that many migrants end up in, which are typically quite precarious and poorly compensated, also become attached to perceptions of racial identity and citizenship. In the United States, these relationships are all around us, with farm workers, restaurant workers, construction, and in more intimate spheres of social reproduction, like child or elder care. Dominic Bitiello, an associate professor of city and regional planning at the University of Pennsylvania, recently published the award-winning book, Sanctuary City, Immigrant, Refugee, and Receiving Communities in Post-Industrial Philadelphia. His book explores the concept of sanctuary and belonging through case studies of six different immigrant communities in Philadelphia which we talk about at greater length in later episodes of the podcast. Dominic made some more general points during our conversation about what migration is in a really fundamental sense, and it brought us back around to these intimacies of race, identity, labor, and migration. I like to, in in conversations about costs and benefits dragged into them, I, I like to point out what many of us talk about as a variety of uh, subsidies that immigrants, especially immigrants who lack legal status, contribute, not necessarily willingly, uh, but contribute tremendously to the wealth of places of people uh, in the United States who overall pay the lowest share of our household budgets in, in the industrialized world, by far the lowest share of our you know, household budgets for food. Uh, and it's because all along the food chain from 
you know, the farms to uh, packaging and uh, preparing uh, and, and, and even in many cases delivering food uh, to us, um, whether you're eating at home or a restaurant uh, or, or wherever, right? Exceptionally low wages and lack of benefits that immigrants either lack legal status in the U.S. or, or who have you know, very tenuous status, uh, uh, temporary status, right, for temporary work, you know, provide an, an immense subsidy, right? But also, you know, within the the sorts of, you know, again, low wages and lack of benefits that people who clean other people's houses or who clean hotels uh, or who, you know, work in usually smaller scale construction, right, are providing, you know, us, uh, uh, the rest of us, you know, uh, let's say middle class Americans, um, making it cheaper for us to, to, you know, have essential services. You may well know uh, one way that some scholars talk about migration and, and really conceptualize those connections between people both right, making decisions to, to, to leave right, their countries of origin and um, you know, ultimately the relationships that they maintain with them and, and, and sort of you know, in, in, in a much broader sense, how do we even conceive of what migration is and the relationships it, it produces, including to places, right, uh, or between people and places, right? Arlie Hock, the sociologist Arlie Hochschild and her colleagues have written about care chains as a way to conceive of things that most people put in somewhat more economic terms, right? Um, but understanding particularly women's migration for work in the broad and growing you know, care sectors, whether uh, you're working as a nurse or in child or, 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 or other forms of elder care, in many ways, what you know, people are doing is sort of displacing uh, uh, familial love. Uh, a woman from the Philippines is the, the uh, in many ways, um, you know, archetypical example, uh, um, partly because the Philippines as a nation explicit policies of training and exporting and then you know trying to draw the the remittance investments back of of nurses around the world and and certainly there are many Filipino maids uh, uh, around the world, but um, the Philippines would much rather uh, uh, export nurses right to somewhat higher paid uh, uh, work often uh, uh, usually uh, um, less, less exploited work uh, uh you know exploitative work than than uh, uh, certainly domestic service but you know what the relationships right in a care chain if you will uh then then you know essentially become as is someone in the Philippines in this example a family member an extended family member is is taking you know care of the migrants uh, uh kids right and and sort of uh, uh while you know the migrant nurse or or maid right is is uh taking care of other people's family, right, and and in a sense, right, we're sort of displacing love along a chain, um, while migrants, uh, us, you know, step in for people uh, in the United States who are largely going to work, including other women who go to work in you know uh, occupations, you know, in which women are highly overrepresented, also have a lot of care, right, including you know just your you know your HR uh, department down the down the hall, right, which is dominated by women, sort of you know taking care of men. I can go on about this. I'm certainly not as articulate as Arlie Hochschild is about care chains, but I find it another really powerful and important way to think in much more humanistic terms, right, or much more humane terms than uh, thinking about migrants as units of labor. It is a really pernicious but also revealing slippage when immigrant communities and individuals end up being reduced to economic benefits in these ways. And these tropes can serve all kinds of political agendas, both liberal or conservative. 
Migration is deeply political for many reasons, but its political utility is not interpreted or leveraged to get at some of those really deep and long-standing structural problems. We'll discuss this a bit more in the next episode that deals more explicitly with migration politics and policy. So we've heard from Leslie about the relationship between borders, space, and racism, and from Dominic about the intimacies between labor occupations and racial categories. But another important area for understanding the connections between racial formation, racism, and global migration is climate change. I spoke with Andrew Baldwin, a professor of geography at Durham University in the UK. He and his collaborators, Christiane Froelich and Delph Roth, organized a special issue in the journal Mobilities back in 2019 that raised a lot of important questions about climate change, mobilities, and migration. And yet when I look at the mo- climate mobilities special issue, again, it's really interesting, but that history, you know, it's basically deracinated, right? Like there is no there is no reference to that important literature. So as a kind of reflection on the last four years, I would say that, you know, the, the job of surfacing race as a term of reference, um, as a category foundational to political and social thought is just an unending one and is requires a sort of continuous effort to expose and reveal because race is pernicious, you know, as um, Stuart Hall um, so nicely puts it, you know, you can send it out the front door, but it will always find a way of sneaking in through the back door. So keeping an eye on the back door, I think, is really important. So you also recently published a book called The Other of Climate Change, Racial Futurism, Migration, Humanism, that works to map the figure of the climate refugee. Can you tell us a little bit about how you started thinking through these questions and maybe explain how racism configures these kinds of political categories? It began, this work for me at least, began in sort of the 2010 period with a kind of a latent, unstated sensibility that within this space of climate change and migration political discourse, there was a kind of silent racism. There was a a kind of, you know, reference to the category of race that was unstated. And so a lot of the work that I've been doing over the last several years has been to try and expose and bring, tease out the way that race operates as a key term of reference within the wider debate about climate change and migration. So, and in that book, I try and make the argument that the notion of the climate migrant stroke climate refugee, and I tend to treat those terms interchangeably, is a figuration of otherness that is specific to climate change. And so part of the argument then is that within this wider sort of political debate about climate change and human migration, really this discourse is about the kind of a kind of recuperation of a Western Euro-Western humanism at exactly the moment climate change, the Anthropocene, whatever you want to call it, threatens to extinguish the human altogether. So this discourse of climate change and migration emerges as a as a mechanism for recuperating a kind of um, lost and waning humanism. So that's the, and then throughout the book, there's a strong um, sort of anti-racist tenor, which is that when we scratch the surface of the category of the climate migrant what we find is that it is a racial category. And the figure of the human is itself also a racial figure. It is the figure of Euro-Western whiteness. So the figure of the climate migrant is 
a fully naturalized form of other, which is to say that it's dehistoricized, it doesn't have a kind of, it's a unique history, movement and mobility are a function of climate, which in this case is sort of, you know, a code for nature. The figure of the climate refugee stroke climate migrant is often displaced from the category of the political. It is a, it is a, a figure without political agency. So it's really, I think, I think ultimately this whole question about climate change and migration is about the reassertion of whiteness at, in, a, in a moment of deep anxiety. For me, my, my sort of intellectual commitment is around thinking race and climate change, race in the Anthropocene. So the sort of, the, 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 um, for example, the context of the Trump presidency and the rise of the far right, the sort of the circulation of particular forms of white supremacy and popular discourse nowadays, you know, these, th- these, these developments really do condition the context in which we should be doing our critical thinking. I, am, I, I think I remain steadfast in my commitment to continue to talk about race in the context of climate change. To, to think about the way that it operates as, an, as a key term of reference in debates about climate change and the Anthropocene. Because there is, I think, the very real risk that with the emergence of the far right and a kind of, you know, an explicit white supremacy, the temptation is to come to associate racism with the far right and with the kinds of white supremacies that attach to the far right. And in debates around climate change and migration, you know, what gets lost is the way that, you know, race and racism are built into climate change, you know, epistemology, right? It, it's inescapable. So the risk, I think, is, is that is, is a simil- one similar to what happened in the 1930s, where racism came to be defined in terms of a kind of ignorance and anti-scientific ignorance attributable to um, elite elites working with the populist discourse on the one hand and you know a kind of you know a working class subject that happily indulged in these you know with these ideas in the next episode we'll be digging further into these questions of belonging citizenship and difference by looking at the sanctuary city as an idea and a political strategy. How do different governments at different scales, municipal, city, nation, or supranational like the EU, adjudicate citizenship? David Kaufman shares some insights on how multi-level governing structures and policy narratives have major impacts on the reception and incorporation of refugee populations in Western Europe. They make a a line between real and fake refugees where there is not no such line to make or very hard to hold such a line or, or distinction. And what we see then, so when we talk, so we talk with all the major political actors there, what, what kind of frame, uh, framework, narrative, what kind of narrative they used in the direct democratic campaigns. And we saw that um, the more the right ideology, the political ideology the actors have or I mean in the US it would be more the the more um, conservative ideologies um, and you have the more you're using this this narrative but also more in context where it's where it's about 
potential tightening or restri more restrictive asylum policy. So in this contest, political contest about more tightening, actors are actually using this asylum abuse um, narrative and they say, yes, we make it tighter, but only to also to the protection of the real refugees. Um, so this is a very strategic narrative that is being used. You've been listening to UAR Remixed, a podcast by Urban Affairs Review. Special thanks to the Lindy Institute at Drexel University and the editors at UAR. Music by Blue Dot Sessions. This show was written, hosted, and produced by me, Emily Holloway. Don't forget to subscribe, share, and rate the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Please visit our website, urbanaffairsreview.com, for more information about the journal and the show, and sign up for our newsletter to get updates. See you next time. <laughs>